All right. Well, uh, we are still in the book of Genesis. I uh, did something that meant that the scripture slides did not work tonight for some reason. I didn't. I, I thought I carried them over. They weren't there. And so I assume the same is going to be <laughs> for the Genesis text that I'm going to be preaching from tonight. Uh, so you can open up in your Bibles to Genesis 33, verses 1 through 17, if you want. Uh, it's, uh, I don't have the page number, but it's near the beginning. So uh, uh, Genesis 33, 1 through 17, if you would like to follow along in there, you certainly can. Um, as, as you know, as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're off the reservation again this week in regards to uh, the prescribed texts. Uh, in, in the liturgy, but this story is, I just love this story so much, I can't believe uh, that they leave it out, and so uh, I wanted to go straight to it. It comes directly after the story last week. As, as last week, remember, we left off with uh, Jacob having this kind of dark night of the soul. Uh, he is getting ready to go back to meet his brother whom he has stolen from, who last he saw one him, and he is uh, wrestling internally with this idea, and then he has this moment by himself or this time by himself where uh, this nameless man comes and wrestles him all night long. Uh, eventually, it's kind of been generally understood in the Christian tradition that in, a, in some sense, he's wrestling with uh, God. And so uh, you have this moment where uh, by the end of this time, uh, when uh, he's wrestling with God all night, he is uh, touched on the hip and he leaves with a limp and a new name. And so uh, what we have is this very kind of literal kind of almost you could call it a come to Jesus moment for Jacob right and then what happens next is we're, we're going to read here in uh, chapter 33 which is uh, him going back and seeing his brother for the first time in 20 years uh, who again wanted to kill him and really has every right to because Jacob has been less than stellar in his character and treating the way he treated people um, so uh, verse uh, chapter 33 verses 1 through 17 uh, we'll kind of walk through this I'll stop a couple times and give you a little context, and then we'll talk um, about the idea of forgiveness and grace. Uh, so it says this, verse 1, chapter 33 of Genesis. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So we'll stop there for a moment. Again, last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. Uh, he ran from Esau for that reason. Esau is a wilderness guy. He's a tough guy. And now here he comes towards Jacob with 400 men. Uh, Jacob was scared of what was going to happen. If you're going to be scared, now is the time to be scared, right? Uh, I mean, he's coming at you with 400 men. It says this, so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. So he begins to line up these folks, and, and you remember he's already sent people in front of him uh, in order to kind of see Esau before he sees Esau. And honestly, as it, as it kind of reads here, you start to think he's putting his own family right there for, between him and danger. But verse 3, Then he himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. And so this would have been a traditional way to greet someone of importance, someone who is kind of higher than you, uh, a dignitary or, uh, you know, de not deity, a dignitary or a royalty or something like that, is bowing seven times on the way, is kind of showing humility on the way to meet Esau. So now is this moment when Esau either takes his revenge or does not. Verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck. 
Remember the last time we heard about his neck is what was covered in, uh, in uh, sheep's skin to, to fool the father into stealing his blessing, fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. So you have this really beautiful scene here of forgiveness and grace happening all at once. When Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Again, this is a bit of a change in tone here. Jacob has always kind of manipulated, always tried to get what he wants out of people, always wanted to set up kind of conditional relationship, even with God. You'll be my God if you do these things for me. And now it is, this is what God has graciously given to me. Uh, verse 6, Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. So all of them show the same kind of respect and humility to Esau. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? In other words, all those folks that he had been sending ahead as kind of gifts to Esau. What do you mean by all this company I have met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So he says, why did you send all this ahead of time? It's a gift. It's so that you might find favor with me. And Esau says, I've got enough. I'm good. Keep what you have. And calls him brother. Reestablishes that relationship. Jacob said, no, please. If I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For, to, for truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Since you have received me with such favor, please accept my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So he urged him and he took it. So I don't need all these gifts. I have everything I need. Jacob says, I have everything I want. And he says, you already find favor with me? Then great. This is not a gift um, uh, of repayment of debt. This is a gift. This is a celebration. Accept this as a gift from me. So he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go alongside you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and herds which are nursing our care to me. And if they are overdriven for one day, all the flocks will die. Let the Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and Sarah. So we're tired. You know, I don't want to wear these folks. You go ahead. We'll meet you there. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of my people who are with me. But he said, why should my Lord be so kind to me? So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the place is called Succoth. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So it's often uh, thought and said that preaching particularly maybe out of the Old Testament, can be very difficult because uh, it can be hard to tie things in the Old Testament to things we learned about from Jesus and Jesus' teaching, right? I often fall into that trap myself. I'm usually preaching the gospel text in part because of that reason. And the truth is, uh, if you've ever sat down and really read through the Bible, there are some hair-raising stories in this book. It is not rated G. 
In fact, the very next story in the text, which is not surprising that is not included in the liturgy from week to week, is a story of Dinah, one of Jacob's daughters, who was seen by a foreign prince. He liked her, so he took her and assaulted her. And then that foreign prince decides, as foreign princes tend to do, that he'd like to marry the woman that he just assaulted. So he gets the king to go to Dinah's family and say that, hey, what do we need to make happen here so this marriage can happen for your daughter and your sister that we just uh, you know, assaulted, took advantage of? So Dinah's brothers tell the king that they could only do this if he and all of his men were to be circumcised. And if they were all circumcised, then it would be okay for them to give their sister in marriage to this prince. One of the more miraculous parts of the story, the king agrees, tells every male in his tribe to get circumcised, every adult male. I don't know about you, but I would love to be a fly on the wall for the conversations that happened after that was announced to the community. I, don't know, I can ask Toby, I feel like this would be bad for your re-election campaign, but so every adult male gets circumcised because the king says so. Now, that's not a very easy process for an adult male. And while they are healing on the third day, while they're still trying to heal from this, all of Dinah's brothers come into town and slaughter all the men who cannot defend themselves. This would make a great felt board story in Sunday school, I think, right? Then they take all their women and all their children and all their belongings and take them back for themselves. Now, again, that would be, we did a children's sermon a couple weeks ago. That would be a tough one to pull off for kids, right? I'll save that for like Memorial Day weekend when none of you show up anyways. But that's the kind of stories we run into. And you might say to yourself, how do you possibly make sense of a story like that? How do you tie that to the teachings of Jesus? And that is a question I cannot fully answer, not just about that story, but lots of stories in Scripture. I would struggle to make those kind of ties. I do believe if you immerse yourselves in Christ's teachings enough, and as you read through even the Old Testament, it feels like it's the farthest away, you're going to find signposts and little flags along the way that begin to point towards the grander story. I think those are there even through the more crazy parts, but it is difficult sometimes. But then you've got stories like today. You don't have to work hard in this story to locate Jesus all throughout it. In fact, tell me if this story sounds familiar to you. There was once a man with two sons. One son did all the things necessary to make the father happy and proud and to really love him. The younger son, though, decides one day that he should get something from the father that isn't his to have. But he gets it. And after he gets what he wants from the father that he does not deserve, that younger son leaves behind a heartbroken father and an angry old brother. Eventually, as tends to happen, this prideful younger brother ends up isolated and alone and coming to a deep realization of who he is and what he has done. So he decides to head back home. He's going to head back home and he's going to try and offer some sacrifices to the family he hurt. Try to make up for what has happened. Offer himself even as a servant. Instead of meeting an angry, vindictive, or vengeful family, when he heads back home, he is met with open arms, forgiveness, and restoration. He is hugged and he is kissed and he is called family by the very ones that should disown him. 
pretty good story, right? Sound familiar? I mean, this story of Jacob and Esau could very easily be a parable of Christ, as much as it is a story about one of the patriarchs. It's a beautiful story that gets at so much of what I think is important and distinctive about our faith. In this story, you can find repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation all working together in this one short uh, story. It's the good news all wrapped up in one place. And this act of forgiveness where Jacob sees the very face of God, the face that he is familiar with from wrestling, where Jacob sees the very face of God in his forgiving brother. In this story, we see that grace is indeed supernatural in its very nature. Grace is a thin place, a place where heaven and earth meet, something that shouldn't be but is. To me, this is one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. I can't understand why they, why they skip it in the liturgy. But I want to talk about it today, and I'm going to consider for a moment forgiveness and its potential power to heal. It's not even very hard, I think, in our world to find some amazing examples today of the power of forgiveness. There's a story of Mary Johnson who reached out to and forgave O'Shea Israel while he was in prison for murdering her only son. And they now have a love for each other and a relationship in the midst of the very real pain and loss that was caused. Or you can look to the uh, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Only three people survived when Dylan Roof started shooting during a Bible study. In fact, he left some of them so that they would bear, be able to tell the story of what he did there. And instead, those survivors, when he was in court, had the chance to speak to him and tell him what they thought, and they spoke forgiveness over him. They wished, they wished mercy and grace for him from God. They gave forgiveness to that racist, violent killer took their kids. You can think of nickel mines. You may not remember that name, but you probably remember that there was a shooter that killed 10 young girls in an Amish schoolhouse. The community mourned. They knocked down the school building out of mourning. But then the Amish of that community raised money for the killer's family and for the kids that were left behind. And some of the very people who lost their daughters attended the funeral of the killer and comforted the family. I mean, absolutely astounding acts of grace and forgiveness. Supernatural. These are all stories of amazing grace that I, like you, I'm sure, find so deeply moving and challenging and confusing and beautiful. Stories that show us that real grace is possible, and it's something to behold. In fact, it's likely the only thing that will ever short-circuit our cycles of violence and hatred and chaos that we have all become too grossly familiar with in our world. They're beautiful stories, but we also run a risk with them. We run a risk of allowing these stories to only tell part of what is really happening here. Because the truth is that grace like this is devastatingly long and difficult. These stories are powerful, and they should be honored. 
the headlines and the short one-sentence stories that I just told you don't tell everything. There is so much behind each of those sentences I just told you about those people who forgave so beautifully. There's lifetimes of hurt and struggle. Forgiveness can be an event, but it's also an arduous process. In none of the situations that I just mentioned is justice, real justice, anything that can possibly be accomplished. Nothing can be undone. Mary Johnson's son is gone. The family of those in the church don't get their loved ones back, no matter how forgiving they are. And those Amish families, even though they feel so different from us in some ways, grieve the loss of their daughters in the same way we would. It's not a simple, straight line. It's hard. It's messy. All of them are still living and the irreversible consequences of another person's decisions. Every day, they struggle. In fact, you can look up some interviews with some of the survivors from the AME church and listen to them talk about how much harder in some ways it is to be forgiving years later than it was even the couple weeks following uh, the event. It's not a simple straight line. True justice is not an option in this broken world. There is no way to undo the things that get done. Forgiveness doesn't stop the loss or end the struggle. Now, I believe that God calls us to grace, full stop. But it's easier said than lived. We're naive if we don't think that forgiveness looks very different every day for each of those faithful people that we mentioned. We're naive if we don't think they continue to struggle and suffer in their loss. That it isn't a long and winding and difficult path that they chose. A better path, but a difficult one. I'm not trying to say all this to bring down the mood. I'm not trying to be morose. But to remind us of how messy this stuff really is. We can very casually use words like grace and mercy and forgiveness in this room when we gather without giving them the weight that is due to them. But some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. If you've ever tried to really forgive someone who's done you harm, I mean real harm, you know. If you've ever sought forgiveness from someone who probably should not give it to you, you know. Maybe you are actively being hurt by someone right now. And you know. You know what a miracle forgiveness is. And you know that if it ever does happen, it's downright supernatural. It's like God's own face showing up in front of ours. We can read this story of Jacob and Esau in five minutes. But remember that Jacob and Esau spent two decades apart before this reunion. Two decades. And while we know a lot of what has been happening with Jacob as he comes back home, those things begin to humble him and challenge him and change him, we have no idea what happened in the last two decades of Esau's life. But I bet during those long, angry, sad days, he struggled. Who knows, in fact, what the reunion would have looked like if it was just ten years earlier. Probably would have been rated R. 
In fact, even in this best case scenario that we read about today, the brothers still go their separate ways at the end. They found a way past the fear and anger and jealousy. The grace is there. Forgiveness is there. Reconciliation happens. It's all real. It's hard fought, but it's real. But that doesn't mean they, they hold hands and sing kumbaya around the fireplace for the rest of their lives. In fact, the end of this scene of reconciliation is Jacob misleading his brother again, telling him to meet him someplace, and then heading the opposite direction. And maybe that was wise. Maybe Jacob knew what Esau did not. Which is we can be brothers again and we can be reconciled, but we probably shouldn't be in the same house. Real justice is not an option on this side of eternity. What was broken by Jacob can't be undone. That, that bell cannot be unrung. But I believe they show us a better, although arguably more difficult, path forward for both of them. That there's an alternative to the cycle of anger and revenge and bitterness that this world always seems to glorify and revel in. And they chose that more difficult path, as should we. So may we take it seriously. May we consider forgiveness with all the gravity that it warrants. Remembering that grace happens at the place where God's highest ideals meets our deepest wounds. And may we not take it lightly. It may be an event, but it's also a long, difficult journey. So may we take both grace and forgiveness seriously, but never casually. And as perfect as our attempts at grace may be, may we never forget that it is the place where we truly find God in the world and in each other. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that there is another way. the seemingly endless cycles of anger and violence and revenge that we find in our worlds, that are in our stories, in our movies, in our songs, in our own hearts, that there is, in fact, another way. That it is not Pollyanna and it is not easy, but it is beautiful. God, we are thankful that you are a God of forgiveness. That even while you hung on a cross, you whispered forgiveness over those who had put you there. And while we might not have all of your grace, we pray for some of it. We pray for enough for today. That we might begin to lean into what is the good news of your love in this world. God, may we find and find a way to be your face in this world. We do love you. And we ask all things in your name. Amen.